a busy week, uh, but I think that this will be a help. And that's my main goal tonight is to be a help in this final message. Second Samuel, if you have your Bible with you, Second Samuel chapter number 9. 2 Samuel chapter number 9. I want you to keep your Bible open as always. And we're going to wade through this short chapter of Scripture. I started using an iPad for my, for my preaching, which is really, if you know anything about me, just any technology scares me. And uh, I, I, I really was reluctant to begin using any technology in my preaching because I, I was the guy that always had that fear that the power is going to go off. I'm not going to. And sure enough, like the second time I used my iPad, something happened. The screen went blank, and that was the shortest message I ever preached. Um, but, uh, but I figured it out. So I, I do use an iPad now. So if you see me glancing down, that's what I'm doing. Second Samuel chapter number 9, if you have your Bible, and let me read begin reading at verse number 1, where the Bible says, uh, David said, is, is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul? So David is the king. He has secured the kingdom. And this is well into the reign of David. So remember, David for years ran from Saul. Saul was killed at the battle there at Mount Gilboa. David became king, but, but not over the entire kingdom. Remember, for seven years, he just ruled over the southern part of the kingdom, while Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, ruled up north. Finally, the kingdom was united. David uh, re- moved the capital from Hebron to Jerusalem, and David ruled there, the united kingdom. Israel never saw a stronger time than in the days of David and the early days of Solomon. Never did. These were the heydays of Israel in the monarchy. And so David now is in Jerusalem. It's been years since Saul died. It's been maybe 20 years, certainly at least 15 years. And now the Bible says that David has a lingering desire. Do you see that in verse 1? A lingering desire. Where the the Bible says, David asks, is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul? Are there any offspring? Does anyone know of anybody that's related to Saul? That I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. I want you to look at that word kindness. The word kindness there is the very famous Old Testament Hebrew word hesed, which is used throughout the Old Testament to describe the loyal love of God or the steadfast love of God. Sometimes it's translated mercy. The mercy of the Lord endureth forever. That's hesed. Uh, kindness. When Tyndale was translating the Bible, he, he didn't really have a good English word for hesed. It, it means love, yet it means kindness. And he coined a whole new word called loving kindness. Isn't that good? Hesed. So when David said, but is there anybody left of the house of Saul? Because here's what I want to do. I want to show them the hesed. I want to demonstrate to to this person the steadfast love of God, loving kindness. Why? For Jonathan's sake. For Jonathan, not because this person deserves it. I don't even know this person. But if this person exists, if there's anybody that exists that's related to Saul, then for Jonathan's sake, I want to show them goodness and kindness and love. Look at verse number 2. And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. This guy turned out to be a real uh, bad guy, but here he he's, seems to be a good guy. And uh, when they had called him uh, uh, unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? He said, Thy servant is he. Yeah, that's me. Look at verse number 3. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God? Same word, hesed. But it's almost reiterated. It's the steadfast love of God of God. The kindness of God. May I show him the kindness of God unto him. And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son. There, there is this, this son of Jonathan. That's David's best buddy. That, that's the very reason for which David wants to demonstrate love to somebody. It's for Jonathan's sake. And lo and behold, there is one offspring of Saul. And it happens to be Jonathan's very son. There is this one son, but watch what the Bible says. Yeah, there's this guy, Jonathan's son, but he's lame on his feet. 
He's lame on his feet. Now, now why? Why would Zeba have added that detail? He's lame on his feet. Because, because lameness really in the Bible rendered you useless. We look at handicaps today, physical handicaps, and we honor people with handicaps. And we've developed laws around the ADA to say, hey, these are, are people that ought to be honored and, and uh, they've overcome their disability and we, we, we actually have honored. But back in Bible days, you were just relegated to beggar status. Uh, you uh, obviously must have done something wrong. God's judgment is upon you. And so I think when Ziba said, yeah, there is this one that is uh, the offspring of John, but he's not the one you're looking for. That there is one guy, but he's not the one that you really want to show kindness to. He, he's, he's, he's not worthy of. Look at verse number three. Or four, rather. The king said unto him, where is he? Ziba said unto the king, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel. He's in Lodabar. Lodabar was located up the Jordan River Valley on the other side. If you ever go to Israel, you've been to Israel, on the other side. If you stand at Bet Shan in Israel and look across to Jordan, you see the mountains of Gilead. Right up there in those mountains, that's Lodabar. In other words, he's hiding out. He's living across the Jordan River, up north, hiding out. Why? Because no doubt, humanly speaking, he's scared to death. I mean, I, I'm related to Saul. Saul's the guy that chased, chased down David. I, my life's in jeopardy. I mean, he's up in Lodabar. And watch what the Bible says in verse number 5. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Maker, went and got him. Why? Because Mephibosheth couldn't come to him, so he went to him, right? And uh, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. He was scared to death. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for, for I will surely show thee kindness, watch this, for Jonathan thy father's sake. I'm going to show you love for Jonathan's sake. You've done nothing. I don't know you. There's nothing you can give to me. There's no benefit to me personally. But for Jonathan's sake, I'm going to show you love. Verse number Eight, he bowed himself and said, what, what is thy servant that thou shouldst look upon me, a, a dead dog as I, as I am? Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said, watch this. Watch the good he does for him. I've given unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul to all his house. Hey, I'm going to give you all of Saul's land. That's a big swath of land. Thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him. Thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons, 20 servants, 35 people that could work the field. And David just gave Mephibosheth all this land. And he gave him uh, Ziba's whole family, all his hired servants, said they will work for you from now on. But Mephibosheth, you're going to raise food for you, but you won't need the food that they raise. You know why? You're eating at my house. You're going to eat at my table. Not just one day for big, some big Thanksgiving meal, but you're going to eat at my table continually. Look at verse number 11. Then said Ziba unto the king, according to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, saith the king, he shall eat at my table. As one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. Oh, this same Mephibosheth who was lame back when his daddy, Jonathan, died and his babysitter was trying to get him out of town because the big bad Philistines were coming. And Mephibosheth fell as a five-year-old. Can you picture a five-year-old that you know? And he fell, it must have been quite a fall, down a ditch, down a cliff, because the Bible says he became permanently injured in both legs as a five-year-old. And now years later, David finds him and he comes and this lame man has a son himself whose name is Micah. And all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem for he did eat continually at the king's table 
and was lame on both his feet. I want to talk to you tonight for just a couple minutes on this topic. Loving, listen, loving forward. Loving forward. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we look at this text. Lord, we've read it. We've sought to understand it. We know that the power of this message comes from it. But God, I pray that you would give me just a sense of your presence. I pray that in this room, tired though we are, distracted though we potentially could be, I pray that you would, in in some supernatural way, just arrest our attention, draw our hearts and our minds to your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would even throughout this message, remind us of your presence, that you're here, that you're speaking. And, oh, God, I pray that this message would fall upon fertile soil, the soil of men and women's hearts. I pray that it would grow and bring forth fruit. Please, God, bless this message for your glory and your glory alone, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I read the story about Peter Shorsch. Happened right here in Florida, St. Petersburg, not too far uh, to the west of us. Peter Shorsch. You say, who is Peter Shorsch? Peter Shorsch went to Starbucks one day. Now, that's always a mistake uh, to go to Starbucks, especially when there are Dunkin' Donuts available. Uh, It's a mistake. But here's why he went. He went to Starbucks because he saw on the news that day that there was a record taking place. All day long at Starbucks, people were paying it forward. Have you ever been in a line at a, at a drive-thru and they paid it forward? And you always kind of felt kind of guilty, like, okay, I guess I got to pay it forward too, right? I've, I've, I've had that happen. Well, Peter saw on the news that this pay-it-forward line was hours long. Hundreds of people had it paid forward, so he wanted to go down and be part of the pay-it-forward line. So he got in line at Starbucks. He was customer number 478. He ordered two vente, like, macchiatos, and uh, the server came to him and said, hey, one of those was paid for by the car in front of you. Would you like to pay it forward? Fully expecting that he, number 478, would say yes, just like 477 people before him had done. And to her shock, Peter who knew exactly what was going on that day, looked at her and said, no. And the streak ended at number 478. Now, I don't want you to forget that story because we're going to come back to it. What does it mean to love forward? What does it mean to love somebody whom you don't know? Watch this, because somebody back here loved you. To love forward, what does that mean? I think as I read the text a moment ago, and I know I'm preaching to to a lot of pastors in the room, and that's always the worst audience to preach to, pastors, because pastors really don't entirely listen, okay? They don't. They don't. They're doing one of two things. Either number one, they're judging, right? That's not what that really means. He mispronounced that. You know, whatever. Or they're stealing, okay? So just if you're near a pastor right now, just pray for him. Uh, just turn off the judgment for a moment, and let's just, uh, I, as I was reading the text a moment ago, I could, I could sense that, you know, you're thinking, man, I'm going to preach this. This is good. I'm seeing this. This is good, right? Always. So uh, I want to talk about what does the Bible, what do, what do I mean, and what does the Bible teach about this concept of loving forward? So three, three big thoughts uh, tonight. First of all, let's talk about the basis. What is the basis in 2 Samuel chapter 9, what is the basis for loving forward? The the fact that David had made this decision in verse number 1, hey, because somebody loved me, I'm going to love somebody else. I I can't love them because they're not here anymore. Uh, Jonathan is not physically on earth anymore. He died loving me. But there are people that are physically on earth today, and because he loved me, I'm going to love them. I'm going to love forward for Jonathan's sake. So what is the basis for loving forward? I think, first of all, it finds basis in the bedrock love of God. 
So when I love float forward, what am I doing? I'm actually being a curator of, I'm actually being a deliverer of God's love. So what kind of love did David receive? David received the pure, sincere, selfless love of Jonathan. It was the love of God. Uh, that God had touched Jonathan's heart to love David. So Jonathan loved David. Now David was the owner of God's love. Do you know that you're the owner of God's love? If that's your possession, you are, you are the owner of God's love. God has set his love upon you. And when you love other people in spirit and in truth, you're loving them not just with your love. Hey, good luck. Hope you have a good day. Hope it works out for you. No, it's not just a human uh, love. It's the love of God that you're transferring. I love that. You ever see that, that, that television ad? Well, I forget what, uh, what was being advertised, but they, they gave a random guy a suitcase full of money. Remember that? Okay, it wasn't a commercial. No, no, no one remembers that. They gave him a suitcase full of money and, and said, could you watch this? And, and it's like the, a stranger will do a better job trying to try protect your money than whatever they were advertising. I thought, boy, boy, I, I wonder how precious the love of God is to us. But I'm afraid sometimes what we do is we sing about the love of God. We raise our hands to the love of God. We quote verses about the love of God. We're happy in the love of God. We rest in the love of God. But the love of God is not supposed to be static in your life. God has given you his love so that you can pass that love on to others. To love people in Jesus' name. To love, and the thing, about, the thing about dispensing God's love to others is you never have less of it yourself. It's like the widow's, it's like the widow's oil. When you dispense God's love, to, you can spend your whole day dispensing God's selfless, steadfast love to other people. And when you're at the end of the day, you have just as much of God's love as you had when you started. Why? Because the, the basis for loving forward is the bedrock love of God. But not only is it the bedrock love of God, I would say, secondly, a second basis for loving forward is the demonstrated love of a friend. H how did David know love? H how did David know what love was? H how did David perceive the love of God? The Bible tells us through Jonathan. It was through Jonathan that was willing to give up his identity. For David, It was through Jonathan that was willing to give up his life. It was through Jonathan that was willing to risk his life and to be faithful. It was through Jonathan that David understood love. What does the Bible say to us? Hereby, 1 John 3.16, hereby perceive we the love of God. How do you understand the love of God? Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good? And seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, that's not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know we're of the truth. What's the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that we know that people love us when they sacrifice for us. Uh, love gives. For God so loved the world that he gave. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and Walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. How do we know love? We know love by what people give and how they sacrifice. And But David learned what love was through Jonathan. So for Jonathan's sake, because of what you did for me, because of what you sacrificed for me, because of the life that you laid down for me, I understand love because of you, Jonathan. So therefore, I want to love other people because I know what love is. I've seen it. I've seen it. I've not just heard about it. I've not just sung about it. I've not just read about it. I know what love is. I've seen it in the sacrifice of that man. Say, where did I learn love? I learned love from my mom. That's where I learned it. Now, I've seen it in many other people in my life, and I have the best wife on earth. But I'm telling you, I saw love first in my mom who loved us and was faithful to us. When my dad walked out the door and she raised us by herself and worked two jobs and just made ends meet and was always faithful, always faithful, always sacrificing, always there, always putting us first, I saw love. Hey, don't despise the day of small things, mom. Don't despise the day of small things, faithful pastor, because people see love before they hear it. And that was David. Boy, David saw it. He perceived it. And Jonathan was able to pass on what he knew to be true. What's the basis for love? It's the bedrock 
love of God. What's the basis for love? It's the demonstrated love of, of a friend. Uh, number three, what's the basis for loving forward? I think the constraining love of a covenant. Here's what David was doing in, in verse number one of 2 Samuel chapter 9. David was honoring an agreement he had made. Did you know that? Like I'm talking about probably 25 years before. A young David who had been rejected by his future, rejected by his father-in-law. Matter of fact, Saul had sent soldiers to his house after his honeymoon to try to kill him. And his wife, Michael, remember, sneaked him out of the house. And Jonathan met David out in Ramah and said, David, I'm, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go to the board meeting. I'm going to figure out what's going on, and I'm going to let you know. And they made an agreement, a covenant there, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. And here's what they said. Jonathan said, now, David, you're going to be the king. And one day, you're going to put down all the enemies. And David, I just want you to promise me you'll take care of my family. What did, what did Jonathan know? Jonathan knew I'm not going to be here. What did Jonathan know? Jonathan knew I know my job's different. I know that you must increase and I must decrease. I know that I will die and you will live. And I'm asking you that you'll love my family in my absence. That you'll love the body that I have loved in my absence. That's what I'm at. That's the agreement. David, okay? David, okay? That's the covenant. And who was there for that covenant? Was it David and Jonathan and, and, and some witnesses that helped to sign it and seal it? Was it David and Jonathan and some kind of a, a congressional meeting where it was ratified? Was it David and Jonathan and an onlooking crowd of soldiers? No, it was David and Jonathan and, and God. And now it's David and God. Nobody was there to see it. So who's there to hold David accountable for loving somebody else? Who's there to hold David? There's nobody that's saying, hey, David, hey, David, remember that promise you made to Jonathan. Remember you said you're going to be kind to his children. I mean, come on. No, what David is doing in 2 Samuel chapter 9 is entirely born out of a conscience of the presence and accountability of God in his life. That's what's perpetuating him. Not what people see, not what people know, not what I'm guilty to do, not what I can report somewhere on the internet. No, I'm going to do good for one reason, because I have a constraining obligation in a covenant relationship with Jonathan. And my conscience tells me I must do this. Do you know that obligation and love are not mutually exclusive? Sometimes we get the idea, well, you know, I serve, serve God out of duty or do you serve God out of love? It's both. It's both. Yeah, Paul said, hey, it's the love of Christ, what? What does it do? It constraineth me. Because we thus judge that, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And Paul said, I just figure it this way. If Jesus loved me enough to die for me, then I just feel like it's my obligation to live for him. Love and obligation, they go together. I am debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you there at Rome also. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Christ. It's the power of God. Oh, what did Paul say? I'm a debtor. What I love. I love God and I love people. And my obligation is my constraint. And what the Bible's teaching in 2 Samuel chapter 9 is that David loved forward. Why? Because he loved with the bedrock love of God. And he perceived love because of a friend that was willing to lay down his own life for him. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. It, he loved forward because he had a conscience for a covenant relationship they had made with Jonathan. So for Jonathan's sake, I'm going to find somebody to love. For Jonathan's sake, the basis for loving forward. Watch this, number two. Not only do I see the basis for loving forward in this chapter, but I see number two, what I'll call the mechanics. The mechanics of loving forward. How, how did he do it? 
What was the apparatus by which David actually went forward with loving somebody? What does that entail? You say, Kurt, I, I want to be that person. I, I want to be somebody that, that loves because I've been loved. I, I want to be somebody that, that searches for somebody to set love upon because somebody was searching for me to set love upon me. I want to love forward. I don't want to be customer number 478. Look at verse number 2. Verse number one again, and David said, is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And yes, there was. We read it. Ziba said, yeah, there's this one guy, but he lives way up in the middle of nowhere, and you don't probably really want to help him anyway. He's lame. There's nothing really he can give back to you. He can't be an effective soldier. He's not going to be somebody that, that's kind of a trophy. I mean, a David, yeah, there's one guy, but he's lame in his feet. And David went and found him. And brought him, you know the story. What, what's the mechanic of loving forward? I think, first of all, David was perseveringly intentional. David was perseveringly intentional. Why? Because love is not something we primarily feel. Love is not pri something we primarily know. Love is something we do. Love is something. David said, I want to do something about this. And he proactively, intentionally, who is it? Who, who is it? How can I best honor this God? Who's out there? How can I best keep my covenant with Jonathan? For Jonathan's sake, who can I love? He was perseveringly intentional. If a man say, I love God, hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen. How, how can he love God? Whom he hath not seen. And this commandment have we from him that he who loveth God love his brother also. No, da David said, Boy, I, I know what love is. I know how love feels. I know what love has done for me. And now, in order for that love, I'm the owner of it. I'm the transfer of it. I've got the bedrock love of God. I've seen it demonstrated in my friend. I've made a promise to that friend. And my conscience tells me before God, I'm going to find somebody on whom I can bestow this love. I'm not going to give up until I find him. I'm going to be perseveringly intentional about finding somebody to show the love of God to. But not only was he perseveringly intentional, I would say he was strikingly impartial. And that's the thing that, that, that strikes me. So David wasn't looking for a quid pro quo. He, he wasn't using his intention to demonstrate kindness as leverage to get something for himself. Sometimes that's how we love. Well, I'll love you if, you know, come on now, I loved you. Sometimes it's the way we look at visitors in our church, right? Wow, they're well-dressed. Good tithers, right? By the way, when I come to your church, I really am not concerned about how you treat me. I really am not. Because any church that's worth its weight in salt will treat a visitor nice. You're always going to be, hey, good to see you. Have a special, here's a gift, right? You get a mug, you get a coffee mug. You know, sometimes you get some breath mints. I don't know what that implies, okay, but you get some. But you know what? I'm not looking how you treat me. I'm looking how you treat each other. Because if I come to your church, I'm not the visitor. I'm you. Right? And so here we see that he was strikingly impartial. Because they said to David, no, David, we did find somebody that met the criterion that you uh, established. They, they, they are a descendant of Saul. Matter of fact, they're a son of Jonathan. But there's nothing that they can offer you. There's no way you can leverage this relationship in a way that will be beneficial to you. You know how you know if somebody really loves you? If you can't give them anything back. That's when you know somebody really loves you. Sometimes the people that, I feel bad sometimes for people that have a lot. Because you never really know. But boy, you got somebody in your life that loves you and you can't give them anything back. Watch how, watch how people treat the elderly and the young. Watch how people treat pets. I'm telling you. It'll tell you a lot about somebody's character. We had a lady in our church in Pennsylvania, and she, she had some mental challenges. She, um, I don't know what her, her issue was, but it was a form of autism, but she was not all there. She came by herself to church. Her name was Sue. Matter of fact, I think she still goes to, to, to our church in Pennsylvania. Sue was different. She was obnoxious. She would speak out in church. She didn't have any social 
you know, intelligence. So she would just speak out in a sermon, say what she thought. She had a really, nah, 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 really annoying voice. Talk like that. And she'd just say things. I'd, I'd, the random things. I'd be preaching on God loves you. Yeah, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> no filter. I made the mistake one time in a Wednesday evening prayer meeting uh, of, of, of j- joking with her. And I said, you know, this. And she looked at me and she swore at me, like in church. I said, okay. <laughs> I said, I have another prayer request. <laughs> Sue would come every service, and you know how that is. You, you have people that want to talk to you, and I'd want to talk to visitors, and she would just cut in line. And she just didn't know how to let you go. She would talk and talk and talk and talk. And I'll be honest with you, I was having a bad attitude about Sue. I'd say to my guys, guys, protect me, right? When you see her coming, head her off at the pass, you know? Distract her. Give her a coffee mug. Give her a breath mint. But inevitably, she would break through the defenses and get to me. And I finally let God work in my heart. And I realized, boy, in as much as you do it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. I thought, man, Sue comes to church by herself. She has nobody. She has no family. We're her family. She loves us. So I just started loving on Sue. Which sounds really spiritual, but it really kind of made it worse. (laughs) Sue'd come up, she'd hug me. Listen, Sue is the only woman other than my wife who has ever in the church lobby (laughs) kissed me on the lips. (laughs) Didn't see it coming. Didn't see it coming, but it came. I mean, what do you do? Here's what you do. You thank God that there was no cell phone going off at that moment with a camera. Because that would have been worse than Jill Biden and Kamala's husband, okay? I'm telling you. One day, Sue had a visitor. Really well-dressed young man. Wow, who's this guy? I mean, sharp. Couldn't wait to meet him. Saw him at the service. He wasn't a church person. You could tell the service just kind of was, he was kind of off like, this This is different. What do I do? You could tell he, you know, what I'm talking about. Lobby after the service. Sure enough, Sue came up to me and said, Sue, who, who's this? This is my son. He was visiting from San Francisco. He was a musician at a very prestigious music conservatory in San Francisco. And he was visiting his mom. I said, do you go to church in San Francisco? He said, no, I'm not a Christian. I'm I'm not a church guy. I said, well, we're glad you came. He said, yeah, I had to come. I said, why? He said, I had to meet the person that loves mom. I had to meet the person who loves my mom. See, there are messages that we preach. And there are messages that we preach. And David said, I am going to be strikingly impartial. I don't care how lame your feet are. I'm not loving you for you. I'm loving you for him. I'm loving you for J- for J- Jonathan's sake, right? And so it was uh, persistently intentional. It was strikingly impartial. I, I think thirdly, it was e- extravagantly liberal, his love for her. I mean, uh, for him, rather. He, consider the extent to which David loved Mephibosheth. It wasn't just, hey, you're Jonathan's son, so here's a meal. That would have been nice. Here's a home. That would have been nice. Here's, a, uh, here's a additional medical help. That would have been nice. No, you get all the lamb that's all alone. You get it all. 
You get it all. And by the way, you get servants to work that land. You won't even need what we produce on that land because you're going to stay with me and you're going to be at my table, not today and tomorrow, but forever. And uh, not just at my table, you are my son. I'm the king and you're my son. Boy, you talk about the goodness of the king for a lame man who could offer him nothing. Why would he do that? For Jonathan's sake. For Jonathan's sake. Loving forward. We see the basis for loving forward. We see the mechanics of loving forward. But notice with me lastly tonight what I'll call the, the theology of loving forward. What, what does all this mean? We read the text. What does, all the, what does this loving forward, okay, that's a cute way of saying it, Kurt, but what, what does this mean? And, and does this have any basis in, in theology in the, in the larger text of the Bible? We zoom back out. Does this mean anything? I mean, Jonathan's sake, uh, Jonathan never did anything for me. Now, I never had Jonathan in my life. So what's the theology of all this? Let me make three statements and I'll be done. First of all, Theological principle number one, loving forward is actually loving backward. I, th- I want you to think about this. Loving forward is actually loving backward. See, but when, I'm, when I'm loving for Jonathan's sake, this person, really what I'm doing is, is I'm loving Jonathan. Say, well, wait a minute. Well, let, let me ask you this question, and I'll, I'll come back to that. Let me ask you this. Can, can, can I... Can I love God the same way that God loves me? Can I? And th- that's my immediate answer, no. And, and here's why. Because God loved me first, right? We love him because he what? First loved us. Okay, so can you love God first? No, he beat you to it. Right? Only when somebody could be first. He was first, you lost. Okay. Okay, how about this one? God loved me when I was unlovely, right? Okay, can you love God when he's unlovely? No. So, question again. Can I love God the way that he loves me? I guess not, right? Because he loved me first. I couldn't love him first. He loved me when I'm unlovely. So can I love God the way he loves me? No. Apparently. But wait a minute. The Bible says, somebody came to Jesus. They said, Jesus, what is the, the greatest commandment? If you could just encapsulate the whole law, put the number one log up there, what would it be? Remember what Jesus said? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. So did he answer the question? Yes. But he expanded the answer to the question. So he said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, if you, could, if you could really love God and love people, you would fulfill the Decalogue. You'd, forget, you, you'd fulfill all the law. Because all the law finds context in loving God and treating other people right. So do these two. Love God. Love your neighbor. You've encapsulated the law. Right? Now wait a minute. Do you know that Paul also talked about the encapsulating way to fulfill the law? Owe no man anything, Romans chapter 13. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Wait a minute. I thought they asked Jesus... What's the greatest commandment? Love God. I get that. That makes sense. Love your neighbor. That makes sense. But Paul said, love your neighbor, you fulfill the law. Nothing about loving God. Galatians chapter 5, he said, all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Nothing about loving God. And the whole talk about licentiousness and liberty and all that... Love, love your neighbor, and that's, so, so, so Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor, you've done it all. Jesus said, love your neighbor. I mean, Paul said, love your neighbor, you've done it all. So are we having a conflict here? Is there a, is there a 
Christological view on love and then a Pauline view on love? Okay, then James. He's the half-brother of Jesus. The pastor of the Church of Jerusalem, he writes a, an epistle called the Epistle of James. And, and in James chapter 2, he said, If ye fulfill the royal law, according to the commandment, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. So, so wait a minute. So James said, the royal law is to love your neighbors yourself. So here we have this, this apparent tension because we have Jesus saying, love God, love your neighbor, you've done it all. And then over here you have Paul saying, love your neighbor, got it done. Love your neighbor, got it done. Love your neighbor, said James, royal law, that's it. So how do you marry, how do you reconcile those two teachings? So somebody comes to Jesus one day and says, uh, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what do you think? He said, well, I, th I think. He's a lawyer, so he knew his stuff. He said, well, I, a lawyer, a lawyer as in the law of God. Uh, I think that you ought to love God and love your neighbor. Well, he got it right. This guy was smarter than Paul and James. Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus said, you're right. You do that and you'll live. You do that, you'll, in other words, if you could, there are two ways to heaven. You know that, right? There's the Jesus way, and then there's your way. And if you never sin one time in your whole life, and you perfectly fulfill the law, then you'll go to heaven. Okay, how you doing? So the point is, there's a hypothetical way. And this man said, what must I do? So Jesus answered the do question. You love God, love your neighbor. Okay, do that, you'll live. The man knew in his heart he could never do that. So he asked a qualifying question, who is my what? See, the Good Samaritan story has nothing to do with, okay, when you do good things for people, that's a nice and cute way to apply it. That's not what the story's about at all. The story is about the insufficiency of you to work your way to heaven. And your need for grace to do the things that God expects of you, like love your enemies. Who is, he didn't say, who is my God, because everyone erroneously thinks he loves God. How do you qualify that? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, not who you think he is. So in the kingdom, one day, somebody's going to say, Lord, the Lord's going to say to somebody, say, son, thank you for visiting me when I was in prison. And the food that you gave me, thank you. And the water that you gave me, thank you. And the clothing when I was naked, thank you. Lord, when saw we thee naked? When saw we thee hungry? When inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it what? Can I love God the way that he loves me? Well, if I can do it unto the least of these and I'm loving him, can I love somebody before they love me? Can I love somebody who's unlovely? Can I love God the way he loves me? Do you, do you know what loving forward is? It's the way that God allows us to love him like he loved us. Before they, if they ever, if they never love me, God so loved the world that he gave us, if they never love him back, that's the love of God to say, I love you. There's nothing you can give me. You're lame in your feet, but I don't love you for you. I love you because of him for Jesus' sake. Loving forward is really loving backward. I'm not just showing love for God. I'm loving God. It's not just for him. It's to him. Boy, does that change your perspective on loving the unlovely. How about this? Theology principle number two. Loving forward is actually loving backward. But I would say secondly, loving forward connects the object of my love to God. Do you know that you're a connector? Do you know that you're a bridge from God's love to people so that 
across the bridge of you and across the bridge of your shared love because you're not loving them with your love anyway. You're, you're, you're the curator of God's love. God has loved you and with the love of God and the demonstrated love of a friend and the, the obligatory love of that covenant, I'm saying, I love you in the name of Jesus. I love you because of the grace that Jesus gave me and I'm just passing on the love for Jonathan's sake. I, I'm loving you. And what happens when you love this person? Don't you know that Mephibosheth thought about my dad? My dad loved this man because of my dad. This man is being good to me. Boy, my dad was faithful. He never knew his daddy. He was five. He was five. When he was running for his life, scared, I'm never going to see my daddy again. And yet here he is saying, my dad, it's because of my dad that I get this love. David connected a dad to a son. That's what we do when we lead people to Christ. That's what we do when we are good to other people. We're connecting dad with a son. That's what we're doing. We are the connectors. Like what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, boy, give this love offering to these poor saints at Jerusalem. Give it to them. But when you give it to them, understand this, that they are going to glorify God for your professed distribution. They're gonna, what you're actually doing is they're not going to say, oh boy, great Corinthians, they gave money. No, they're going to say a great God that worked in the hearts of Corinthians that gave us money. God, you're great. Thank you, God, for using them. You want an illustration of that? What if I were to take I'll get a bigger denomination here because I know how greedy you are, Brian. <laughs> what if Jonathan said to me, this is your money. Why don't you, what, what if you said to me, hey, give that to Brian. What happens? Jonathan said, give this to him. Who, who, who does he appreciate? See, our problem is we never say, God told me to do this for you. Because <laughs> we want the glory. <laughs> Good message, yeah, thanks. You know, thank you for that gift. Well, you know what, we really love you. Or that was from God. That was from God. I just, see, I just delivered. Don't you understand life? We just, we connect the objects of love to the lever. Who's God? That's loving forward. That's a theological principle. So, Just doubled my love offering. <laughs> loving backward, loving forward connects the object of love to God. But watch this lastly. Loving forward demonstrates the mission of Christ. We've been talking about that the whole time. I, I can't preach to a room full of preachers without you already knowing the conclusion of this message. Because we don't love for Jonathan's sake. We love for Jesus' sake. Who died for us. Who gave us his identity. Who gave us what we don't deserve. We can do nothing for him. We're lame in our feet. But he sits us at his table. He calls us his children. And then he gives us the opportunity just to express forward his love for others. What a blessing. For Jesus' sake, who can't you forgive? Who can't you forgive? Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. They don't deserve forgiveness. Of course they don't. But you can love like God loves, because you didn't deserve it. You had nothing to offer. It's for Christ's sake. So there he is. Peter Schorsch. Sitting in the drive-thru line at Starbucks. Number 478. Sir, the first venti macchiato that you ordered is free. Would you like to pay it forward? No. And if I left it there, you'd say, that Peter is a pretty awful guy. 
And here's what Peter said. No. Because I think at this point, it's just gimmicky. I think people are just doing it because they feel like they don't want to be the one that breaks it. I feel like people are just doing it out of guilt. So no, I don't pay it forward. Now here's $100 for you as a gift. When you give to people, give out of your heart. Not out of obligation or because everyone else does or because it's the gimmick of the day. Give because you love them. Now you like Peter. I wonder how much of our love and our service is gimmicky and trendy and cultural. And I wonder if any one of us can just discover the love that God had for a poor lame man called Matt. Let's learn from this conference how to love forward. Father, thank you for the opportunity that you give me to share just principles from your word. Lord, we thank you most of all just for this poignant story tucked away, almost like a little parenthetical, and yet so rich, so powerful. And, oh, God, I pray that as conduits of, as bridges to, as simple servants of Christ, that you would help us to love forward. Our heads are bowed for just a moment. Our eyes are closed. I'm thinking right now that you probably have somebody on your heart right now. I'm thinking there's probably somebody. Maybe they've done you wrong. Maybe you'd call them an enemy. Maybe there's somebody that just, hey, come on. Instead of you filling that blank, why not just love forward? Yeah, but they don't. Yeah, I know they don't. But you're loving Jesus. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You're serving Him. You're loving Him. You're loving with God's heart. How about it? Can we just take some time tonight? In a moment, we'll stand. Some have already come. And come to this altar and say, God, I want you to help me to love forward. And Lord, I'm loving forward specifically, impartially, intentionally. This person, this way, this night, oh God, how about it? Father, bless this invitation. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in hearts. Oh God, tonight, may we love forward, I pray, in Jesus' name. Let's stand to our feet. God spoke in your heart tonight. Why don't you come, even now?